passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, good morning. Uh, good to, to open up God's Word with you this morning. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to 1 Samuel 14. That's where we're at this morning. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 14, starting in verse 23. So um, last week we went through the first 23 verses of 1 Samuel. Now we're going to continue in verse 23 and then uh, look at the rest of 1 Samuel chapter 14. Um, as you're opening up to that, I want to ask a question um, for you uh, to, to just consider, and that is, what is it that you will be remembered by? Or maybe another way of putting that is, how will you be remembered? This is a, this is a really important question. It's, it's not just a question for those who are um, in retirement age or nearing retirement age, thinking about how they're going to finish well. Um, I, I, for the last several years, have mentored students at the middle school, and this is one of the frequent questions that I ask them as we get together and we, uh, we just spend time together, is how do you want to be remembered? And this is an important question, because the sum of our day-to-day actions will create our legacy, or how we are remembered, for better or for worse. And today, as, as Pastor Stephen just shared, and we just had some students up here, graduation Sunday, senior Sunday, we have some, some seniors that are graduating, and they've left a legacy behind here in the Spencer High School, whether they meant to or not. This is, this is the reality of life. How will we be remembered? How do we want to be remembered? 1 Samuel 14 gives us insight into King Saul and how he, the first king of Israel, is remembered. And Saul reigned for 40 years, that's what Acts tells us, and, and yet we're giving, given very little information about his reign. It's actually kind of surprising how little we know about his reign. In fact, what we look at as we consider 1 Samuel is 1 Samuel 13, 14, and 15. That's it about Saul's reign. He appears throughout the rest of the book, but leading up to that is how he becomes king, and then after that, he serves kind of as a foil for David as David is anointed king and becomes the king. The only part of this book that we have about what Saul's reign was like is 1 Samuel 13, 14, and 15. So just three chapters that describe his reign as king, and two of those chapters, 13 and 14, are focused on a battle, just one battle, his battle with the Philistines at Michmash. And from the outside perspective, as we consider the the reign of, of King Saul, this battle is a massive success. The people of Israel kick the Philistines out of the land. Saul is a massive success from the outside perspective, and yet is that what 1 Samuel 13 and 14 focuses on? No, as we look at these two chapters, we see that God has different priorities. God has a different perspective of the life of Saul. And what we see as we consider chapter 13, chapter 14, we see that Saul's life is a tragedy. And as a tragedy, it serves as a warning for anyone who would listen to this text. Anyone who would have their ears open, 
how we also, if we are not careful, can live a life that is a tragedy. How we can make a tragedy of our lives. And as we jump into this text, I just want to plead with you here at the beginning to, to listen to it. Listen to the message of this passage. Don't live a tragic life like Saul in these verses. Now, this is a unique passage. We're going to soon see that. It's, I, I was like, how, do I, how on earth are we going to preach this? This is a very unique passage. Really, what it is, is this, it's story after story after story after story. There's four stories that we're going to look at this morning, and, and all of them assume some sort of background knowledge of the Old Testament, background knowledge of the laws of the Old Testament. And so to make it easier to grasp the structure of this passage, I've, I've organized it really into four pictures of tragedy for us, looking at the four separate episodes or four separate stories that we are going to read this morning. So we're going to look at how we can squander our lives if we're not intentional, uh, based off of the life of Saul. But before we do that, I'm going to pray that God would open our eyes, open our ears so that we could hear what the Spirit has to say to us this morning. Would you pray with me? Uh, Lord, as we consider this passage, we ask that you would give us, each of us, eyes to examine our lives, that you would help us consider the possibility that all too often we have a whole lot in common with Saul. God, by your grace, we ask that you would help us, you would strengthen us, that you would turn our eyes to Jesus, who is our only hope. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, so this text opens with the first episode. The first episode is the curse in verses 23 through 30. Here's our first tragedy. It is a tragedy to seek my glory rather than God's. It is a tragedy to seek my glory rather than the glory of God. That's a tragic life, a life that's highest goal, its, its chief aim is its own glory, its own reputation, its own status among other people, and not the glory of God. And that's what we see from Saul in these verses. If you weren't here with us last week, last week we saw that God has intervened into Israel's history to save the people of Israel. That's the first half of chapter 14. Israel has the Philistines, they're on the run, this massive victory, this rout because of God, and we see this in verse, in verse 23, it says this, so the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. So far so good, right? This, this powerful picture, God has come through, God has saved the people, this day God has saved Israel, and then we get to this in verse 24, and the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. Now, there's some intentional parallelism here between verse 23 and 24. Verse 23, the Lord saved Israel that day. A verse later, the Israelites, or the men of Israel, were hard-pressed that day. So what we're seeing here in 1 Samuel 14 is that even though God has intervened, even though God has saved the people, even though the Philistines are on the run... The victory isn't as good as it could have been. This phrase, hard-pressed, is this phrase that's oftentimes used in the Bible. It's used actually a chapter earlier in 1 Samuel 13 to refer to Israel's oppression at the hand of their enemies, specifically the Philistines. 
But we know here it can't be the case. It can't be that the reason why Israel is hard-pressed is because the Philistines are, are oppressing them. It, it, it's something different because we know that this is a route that God saved Israel that day. So why is Israel hard-pressed here in chapter 14, verse 24? We're given the answer in the second half of verse 24. It says this. Notice I'm going to read from the NIV because I think they get the, the connection between these two uh, halves of the verse rather than the ESV. Now the Israelites were in distress that day because Saul had bound the people under an oath, saying, Cursed be anyone who eats food before morning comes, or evening comes rather, before I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the troops tasted food. Notice that there's a causal connection here. The people of Israel are hard-pressed because Saul has placed them under an oath. He has placed them under a curse. Apparently, before this moment, before the people of Israel went out to battle against the Philistines, Saul makes them all swear that they're going to fast during the battle. So before you go out, you have to promise me that you're not going to eat any food until I am avenged on my enemies, is what Saul says. And this is unheard of. Now, it was, it was relatively common for ancient militaries to, to take oaths of abstinence from sex or alcohol or meat or things like that during battle. Just think of, of Uriah the Hittite in 2 Samuel chapter 11. But to, to abstain from food completely was ludicrous. It's absolute lunacy for obvious reasons. But even worse, notice Saul's reasoning. We saw that at the second half of, of verse 24. Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So here we see that Saul's concern is not the glory of God, but it's his own reputation. He says, hey, hey, I want no one to eat food until I have been avenged. He's been taking losses. He's, he's looking weak from the very beginning of this battle. Just Consider the testimony so far of chapter 13 and 14. It is Jonathan who strikes first in chapter 13, verse 3. It is Saul who abandons the strategic location of Michmash in 13, 4, and 5. Saul calls an army to join him, and the people run away and hide in verses 6 and 8 of chapter 13. Saul calls for this army. He's been rejected by God, and, and by extension, God uh, sends his prophet away from him. That's what we see in 13 verses 8 through 14. At the beginning of chapter 14, it's not Saul, but it's Jonathan who again strikes and leads the people to victory in chapter 14, 1 through 15. So Saul places this impossible burden on the people, and it's because of his own pride. His pride is wounded. And just like with us, a wounded pride is prone to overreact in order to save face. Saul is threatened by the success of others, and he wants to know that he is still, he wants other people to know that he is still the king. He wants other people to know that he is still pretty impressive. And we saw last week that Jonathan, he acts because he expects God to work. And yet Saul, here in this passage, is concerned with who's getting the credit. 
How often we act like Saul. How often we are concerned with not getting enough of the credit, not having our name mentioned in the successes, wording or phrasing things when we're talking to other people to make ourselves look good and impressive. Jonathan is concerned about the glory of God in the first half of chapter 14, and now we see Saul, and he's concerned that God's getting a little too, bit of the, a little bit too much of the credit. And so he says, I need people to swear to, to take a fast until I am avenged on my enemies, and that's a tragedy. Pick up in verse 25. Now when all the people came to the forest, so they're chasing the Philistines now, they're chasing them through a forest. When all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the grounds. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath, so he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Here we see just why Saul's selfish curse is, is making the Israelites hard-pressed. Jonathan doesn't hear his father's oath, this vow that he makes everyone swear. He's off already fighting the Philistines. And, and so while the people of Israel, they're chasing the Philistines through this forest, and this forest is filled with so many beehives that the beehives are actually overflowing. There's honey falling on the ground. This is probably a, a picture. Remember, if, you, if you're familiar with the Old Testament history, the, the promise is this land is a land flowing with milk and honey. This is a promise of, of the goodness, the bounty of this land. And as they're walking through this forest... No one touches the food except for Jonathan. And as Jonathan's walking, he takes his staff and he dips it into some of the honey on the ground. He eats it and his eyes become brighter. In other words, his eyes, he is rejuvenated. Notice the contrast here at the end of verse 27 with Jonathan. His eyes became bright and with the people of Israel, the army in verse 28 at the end. We have his eyes became bright and the people were faint. Here is this army, and they are chasing their enemies over this rugged, mountainous terrain for miles upon miles. We'll soon see that it's about 20 miles, and they're chasing them while not being able to eat. And when, when Jonathan becomes aware of his father's curse, his vow that he put on the people of Israel, how does he respond? We see that in verse 29. Then Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of the enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. Jonathan doesn't mince any words when talking about his father's foolishness. I want to just focus on that first phrase that he says here. He says that my father has troubled the land. And if you write in your Bibles, this is a great word to underline, this word troubled, because it's a significant word. It's not used very often in the Bible, and other places it's used, it refers to this time when God is withholding his blessing because of the rebellion of his people. So one of the most common places, or one of the most well-known places that this word troubled is used is in Joshua chapter 7. 
Joshua 7 takes place hundreds of years before 1 Samuel, and Israel is just entering into the promised land. They've just conquered Jericho, and they're about to attack the city of Ai. And they attack the city of Ai, and they are defeated. And it's only their second battle. And the Israelites are devastated. They're wondering what on earth is going on. They think that they, maybe they're not strong enough to, to actually overcome all of their enemies. Maybe God didn't know what he was talking about. All of this is going to end in a disaster. Even Joshua, the leader of Israel, the leader of God's people, it's like, well, maybe this isn't such a good idea. Maybe, maybe we shouldn't be doing this. And in Joshua 7, do you know how God responds? Joshua 7, he basically says, Joshua, do you really think the reason why the people of Ai defeated you is because I'm too weak? No, it's obviously because someone is in your midst who has sinned against me, and because of that, I am not fighting for you. So Joshua, find the person who has sinned against me in the camp, and then once you take care of that sin, I will again fight for you. And so Joshua goes through this practice called casting lots, and he finds out it's this guy named Achan. Notice what happens to Achan in Joshua chapter 7. Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire, and they stoned them with stones. So Achan is brought forth. He confesses that when they attacked Jericho, he decided to take some of the, the loot of the spoils and, and brought some of the plunder from the battle. And Joshua says, you know what, you are a troubler of Israel. And so he is put to death for his actions. Now go back to, to Jonathan in 1 Samuel chapter 14. Jonathan's at, his words here are, are extreme. He's saying that Saul's actions are like Achan's actions in Joshua chapter 7. They've brought trouble upon the land. And unless God remains gracious, then this might snatch defeat out of the jaws of victory for God's people. Why does Jonathan use such strong words when he is talking about his dad's actions? Well, it's because Jonathan understands what Saul, his dad, is blind to. Saul repeatedly ignores the weightier parts of following God, mainly following him obediently, listening to God, all the while he is placing his emphasis, his priorities on, on looking religious, doing things that place heavy burdens on his army like a fast, but they look like they're actually seeking God's glory when he's actually just seeking his own. And Jonathan sees where this is headed and it isn't good. And so he says, hey, you know what, unless God intervenes, Israel, they're going to face defeat just like we did at Ai centuries ago. Do you see why this is such a tragedy to be consumed with your own glory, to seek your own glory rather than that of God's? It's because it's this snowball effect. The situation gets worse and worse. Your priorities get worse and worse. Your actions take on more and more desperation. And unless God intervenes, it will lead to your destruction. And that's our first episode of this passage, if you will. It's this picture, this picture of, of seeking your own glory 
rather than the glory of God. And we're going to look at the next episode in verses 31 through 35, and we see this hunger. This happens as a result of this foolish vow, that, that this foolish curse that Saul places the people of Israel under. We see that it's not without consequences. The second tragedy is this. It is a tragedy to be consumed with the sin of others, and yet not my own. It's a tragedy to be consumed with the sin of others, and yet not my own. That's what we actually see from Saul here in verses 31 through 35. Pick up in verse 31. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ijalon, and the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. Ijalon is about 20 miles away from Michmash. It's very rocky, hilly, mountainous terrain. And when the people of Israel arrive in Ijalon, and this must have been some sort of Philistine camp, the sun at last goes down. They're freed from the, the curse that Saul placed them under. And so the army pounces on the food. Two weeks ago, I was at Camp Foster which, with a bunch of middle schoolers. And we got done with our time there, and they brought out these snacks. And 30 seconds later, the snacks are gone. They pounced on the food. Pastor Stephen was with me. We're like, what on earth just happened here? Where did this, where did this food go? We're on the bus ride back to Spencer, and we look, and, and lo and behold, everyone's got their own personal box of Girl Scout cookies that they took from this package or this pile of snacks. So when you think of, of pouncing... Think of middle schoolers and candy. Or think of, of college students and, uh, and an all-you-can-eat buffet. High schoolers and pizza. I could go on and on. This is, what, this is what's happening here. These people are so famished that they cannot even wait until the blood of the animals drains out before they start eating them. And actually, the context implies that they're just eating these animals raw. It's an absolutely disgusting sight here, but it's not just disgusting it's also one that clearly breaks God's commands. Leviticus 17. This is found a number of places in the Old Testament law. Leviticus 17 is just one example. If anyone eats the, any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. So here we see the result of, of Saul's foolish curse here. It's led to the people breaking God's commandments. They're so hungry that they just jump on this food and they can't even wait until it is properly prepared. How does Saul respond? Well, that's what we see in verse 33. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat and do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night, and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. So in one sense, what we see from Saul here is exactly what you would expect him to do. This is what he should do. He rebukes the people. He tells them that they are breaking God's commands. He's being a good leader right here. He's, he's telling them 
how they have broken God's commands, and he, he provides a way for them to address the sin of eating the blood in this moment. He builds an altar for the animals to be slaughtered on, for uh, the animals to be prepared the right way. But at the same time, is there any hint of Saul's admission of his own guilt in this passage? Does Saul recognize how he has contributed to this situation, to this sin from the people of Israel here? Remember this picture we've gotten of Saul to this point in 1 Samuel. This is a man who regularly and repeatedly does not keep the commands of God. He doesn't have time to actually follow God. It's significant. If you notice at the very end of what I just read, this is the first altar that Saul has built. He's been a king for years, maybe even decades at this point, and now he's finally building an altar to worship God. And here we see that he gets upset when he sees the sin of others, but he makes excuses, as we saw in chapter 13, when he's confronted with his own sin. And this, my friends, is a tragedy. The way 1 Samuel has played out, we've, we've had a lot of sermons lately on, on obedience and, and repentance. And as we take what Saul does here and we try to apply it to our own lives, it is a tragedy when we hear a sermon, a text that talks about repentance, that talks about obedience, and our first thought is, man, I wish that person was here. Oh my goodness, how do I get someone to listen to what this passage is saying? Because they have some sin in their own lives that they need to address. It's a tragedy to be consumed with the sin of others and not see the sin in our own lives clearly. Our first response when we hear a passage talking about repentance and obedience is not to say, man, I wish this person was hearing it, but man, God, give me eyes to see my own sin clearly, how I have offended you. It's a tragedy to excuse our own sin, to think we've done nothing that offends God, but my goodness, those people over there, it's a tragedy to be consumed with the sin of others and yet not with our own sin. Page turns to our third episode, The Vow. Third tragedy found here in verses 36 through 46. It is a tragedy to have the appearance of faith without any substance. It's a tragedy to have the appearance of faith, to look like you have faith, and yet there's no substance there. Verse 36. Then Saul said... Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. So let's go ahead and stop right here. We're not all the way through verse 36. We're stopping here because I want you to see what Saul is doing. Saul's doing the exact same thing that lost him the kingdom in chapter 13. Saul is doing the same thing that he has always done. He's acting like a king like the nations. He's acting unilaterally like he's the final authority. He's not seeking God's will. He says, hey, you know what? I think we should go attack the Philistines. 
but he doesn't, he doesn't seek God's will. He wants to wipe the Philistines off the map, and yet there's no category for Saul to actually ask, Does that what God want, is that what God wants me to do? Thankfully, the high priest is there, says this, the end of verse 36, but the priest said, hey, let us draw near to God here. So thankfully, the high priest is there. He serves as a check for Saul. It's like, hey, uh, Saul, you, you just lost the kingdom because you wouldn't seek God's will. How's that worked out for you in the past? Before we do anything rash, let's go ahead and ask God before we make decisions like this. And again, here we see the heart of Saul. God just doesn't mean that much to him. He uses God as, as a way to, to make himself look good, to make himself look impressive, but at the end of the day, Saul just doesn't really care, doesn't really get it. There's no substance to his appearance of faith. This past week, I read a comment in one of my study Bibles on this um, these verses, and I thought it was really helpful for understanding how we do this in our own lives. It, it just said this, when God does not occupy first place, he seldom remains long in second, but is quickly relegated to either, even lower standing until he is forgotten altogether. And that's what we see from Saul. God doesn't have the place of prominence in his life, God isn't the, the ruler, the king that he has to answer to, and so God continually slides down the list of priorities for Saul. And the same thing is all too true of us when God doesn't hold the, the place of prominence in our lives. It is increasingly easy for us to crowd him out with other things to the point where we just end up like Saul at the end of the day. We forget to consult God. We don't really care what God has to say. Sure, if God wants to bless what I have already decided to do, that's great, but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter to me. Thankfully, there's a high priest there who says, hey, Saul, you're doing it again. And so Saul says, oh, right, yeah, that's what got me in trouble again. Let's Let's, uh, let's go ahead and, and ask God. That part's not actually in the text, but it's implied. Verse 37. And Saul inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. So God doesn't answer Saul, and we'll soon see that Saul assumes it's because there's sin in the camp. He, he assumes that this is kind of like Joshua and Achan in Joshua chapter 7. But I want us to ask, because God doesn't actually say that the reason why he doesn't answer Saul is because there's sin in the camp. So I want us to ask, is it possible that God doesn't answer Saul because of his own sin? Not primarily because of Jonathan and the honey. That's the underlying theme that we see throughout chapter 14, really the, the life of Saul, is he doesn't seek God's will and God is silent to him. That's what we see again here. It doesn't lead to self-introspection, though. The silence never leads to, to self-introspection from Saul. He just says, hey, there's got to be something wrong with the people. And so he calls this midnight assembly of Israel. It says this in verse 38. And Saul said, come here. All you leaders of the people, and know 
and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives, who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. So Saul calls this midnight assembly. He wants to get to the bottom of this whole deal. Remember Joshua, Achan, chapter 7. 1 Samuel chapter 14 has already told us that, that Saul is a whole lot like Achan. He's a troubler of the people of Israel. But Saul sees himself as Jonathan, or excuse me, as Joshua. He's calling this assembly. He says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to the bottom of the issue. and goes through the same ceremony that Joshua does in Joshua chapter 7. And to prove to the people that he's really serious about God, he's really serious about the faith, he, he says, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and kill whoever has sinned against God. He just doesn't hear this from God, God doesn't tell him to do this, he just makes it all up, he assumes that this is God, what God wants him to do. There's this massive difference between Joshua and Saul, but for Saul, he thinks, you know what, I'm acting like Joshua. I'm the good guy here. I'm serious about my faith. I'm willing to even kill my own son because of my commitment to God. Just a side note on this. Do you see how dangerous just a little bit of religion, a little bit of faith is Saul has convinced himself that he is being spiritual, that he is honoring God with his life, and yet we look at the story of the Bible, the testimony of the Bible, and it's actually that he's opposing God, he's doing the exact opposite of what God actually wants. It's nonsensical for us to think that a haphazard commitment to God makes us an expert on God, and that's exactly what Saul does here. Saul doesn't hear from God, and yet he knows a little bit about Israel's history. He knows a little bit about what happened with Joshua and Achan in Joshua chapter 7. And so he says, you know what? This is the same thing. I'm the good guy here. Let's go ahead and find out what the problem is. Verse 40. Then he said to all Israel, you shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan, my son, will be on the other. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or it is in Jonathan, my son, O Lord, God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people, Israel, give Thummim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. And Saul said, cast the lot between me and my son, Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Now, if you're wondering what exactly just happened in this passage, that's okay. This is, truth be told, we don't know exactly what is being described here, but we can kind of piece together best guesses, and, and the overall picture of what's happening is clear. The, the specifics probably look like this. The Urim and, and Thummim were these two pebbles, probably, that were um, carried around by the high priest. And one was white, one was black, and they were used to discern the will of God, to ask God questions. But because there's only two of them, you could only ask yes or no questions or, or one or the other types of questions. This is why we have uh, basically the process of elimination. First, it's between Jonathan and Saul and the people. And then once Jonathan and Saul are taken, then it's between Jonathan and Saul. And so what would likely happen is that there was this box that they would put both of them in and you'd shake it. And this is going to sound a little crass. I don't mean it that way. Um, but it was kind of like the Yahtzee cup when you're shaking the dice. It's kind of like that. You'd shake it until one of them would fall out. 
And if it was black, it would be one answer. If it was white, it would be the other answer. If both fell out at the same time, then it was a, an interpretation that God is being silent. That's probably what this looked like here. So what happens is that Jonathan is taken through process of elimination, and Saul, remember, he thinks that he is Joshua here. He has his Achan, right? He has his Achan, and his Achan is his son, Jonathan. And so the next question is, well, what have you done, Jonathan? Maybe you've stolen loot from the Philistines just like Achan did. Maybe it's idolatry. Maybe it's something like that. What did you do, Jonathan? Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan said to him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. So Jonathan's statement here is an admission of guilt. He said, you know what? Yeah, I ate some honey. But it's also a not-so-subtle statement of how ridiculous Saul's vow is in this moment. It's almost like Jonathan's saying, hey, you know what? I, I hate to do it to you, break it to you, Dad, but I'm no Achan. I didn't steal anything from God or the Philistines. I'm no troubler of Israel. I've not rebelled against the Lord. I ate some honey. But if you really think that's deserving of death, if you really think that's honoring to God, here I am. Go ahead and kill me. And Jonathan's statement falls on deaf ears. And Saul said, God do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Saul is out of his mind. He is out of his mind. He's so bent on looking the part of the spiritual. He's so unwilling to admit that he was wrong to the people that he's going to go ahead and go through with it to kill his son. And in doing so, he proves that he may have the appearance of faith, but there's absolutely zero substance there. And it's tragic. Here is this man who at the end of the day thinks that God is someone he can use to get ahead in his life, not a king that he has to answer to. Do you really think it is honoring to God for him to put his son to death for eating honey? In the next chapter, we're going to read these words in 1 Samuel 15, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And honestly, those words are perfectly appropriate right here as well. To obey, to follow God, not just give the appearance of religion, is better than sacrifice, than going through the actions, the motions of religiosity. It is a tragedy when a life is spent giving the appearance of faith, and yet there is no substance to it. And that's what we see from Saul and all too often, it's what we see among ourselves as well. We might try to use the right religious language when we try to impress others. We might do this by just attending church, but deep within our own hearts, we're far from God. Our lives might be marked by disobedience. What a tragedy it is. Thankfully, in the story of Jonathan and Saul, cooler heads prevail. 
Then the people said to Saul, shall, Saul or shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not be one hair of his head that falls to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. The people can see what, Jonathan, or what Saul cannot. Jonathan is on God's side. Are you Saul? Are you on God's side? Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. So things enter, or end here with this whimper. Saul wants to spare no one in verse 38, and yet by the end of the passage, he's letting the Philistines go. It's interesting that this question that he asks in verse 37, the, the, it never gets answered. The silence continues from God even after this thing with Jonathan. As the underlying assumption here, the underlying indication here, we know who the real Achan is in this passage, the real troubler of God's people. It's not Jonathan, it's Saul. And that brings us to our final episode. The reign of Saul is our final tragedy. It is a tragedy to have worldly success and fail in the things of God. It is a tragedy to have worldly success and yet fail in the things of God. Verse 47. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. And he did valiantly and struck down the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malkishua. And the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the first one was Merab, and the name of the younger, Michal. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Himaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. They were, there was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. So this chapter ends with what you would expect at the end of the reign of a king. There's basically a summary giving all of the accomplishments of the king, all of uh, a description of, of part of his family at least. So it's significant that it's found here because Saul's not done being king yet. And yet for all intents and purposes, the reign of Saul is over in God's eyes. And so it's put right here. He's going to reign for many more years, probably even decades. He's going to have great military success. He's going to surround himself with valiant warriors. And yet none of that matters to God. None of it matters to God. 1 Samuel 14 shows us clearly that God's priorities are nothing like our priorities. If you leave God out of the equation, Saul is an excellent king. He's Israel's first king and he establishes Israel's borders. He has success against the armies and the enemies that have attacked and, and oppressed them for centuries. He brings stability for the first time in Israel's history, maybe ever. There's just one problem. We can't leave God out of the equation. 
And in God's eyes, it's not the impressive military victories that matter. It's not the number of descendants. It's not the worldly accomplishments of Saul that matter. It is his unwillingness to listen to God. And if you leave God out of the equation, you may be a a massive success. You might have achieved more than most people your age. You might have accumulated enough through shrewd thinking, perceptive business of money management that you can retire early or you can at least retire well. Maybe you have the perfect family life that everything is structured perfectly. Your kids are the same high achievers that you are. And yet this text makes it very clear you cannot leave God out of the equation. Chapter 13, chapter 14 is the story of one of the the minor moments of Saul's life. And yet, God says, that right there is the picture of who you really are, Saul. And that is what you will be remembered for. Because there, that sums up a life that doesn't want anything to do with me. And that's how you will be remembered. What a tragedy. Jesus puts it another way. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? You know, we get to the end of of chapter 14, and, and if there was any doubt on whether or not Saul was qualified to be king before this moment, it's very clear now. We come to this, the end of this chapter, and, and Saul, he's a king like the nations. He doesn't want anything to do with the things of God. As we come to the end of this chapter, I just want us to ask a question that Saul should have asked, that each of us must wrestle with, and it is this, will I be remembered for seeking my glory or the glory of God? How will you be remembered? How are you structuring and ordering your life now? In the small things, not necessarily even in the big things, just the small things. Will you be remembered for seeking your own glory or the glory of God? It's really easy to read this text and think, man, Saul, you are such a failure. And yet all too often, we are just like Saul in this passage. Like Saul, all too often, we are more concerned with our own glory than God's glory. Like Saul, it is easy for us to see the sin of those who are around us and be blind to our own, especially just like when Saul, when our sin contributes to the sin of other people. Like Saul, we, we struggle giving God the place of prominence in our lives, and we can just go through the motions to make ourselves look religious, look impressive to others when there's no real substance of faith in our lives. And then when the truth comes out, we try to cover it up with even more religiosity, even more dead religion. And just like Saul, our, prob- our public and professional accomplishments mean absolutely nothing. if we fail at the things of God. The life of Saul is a tragedy. And yet, in the broader story of the Bible, this this moment of tragedy 
leads to hope. It leads to hope. Because in all the ways that Saul fails, in all the ways that I fail, all the ways that you fail, Jesus is faithful. And because of King Jesus, the tragedy of our lives does not have to stay that way. Our lives are tragic. And yet Jesus is in the business of taking broken, messed up, tragic, wasted lives and making them beautiful, of making them meaningful, about making them about his glory and not our own. And that's the beautiful thing about this Jesus. It's not too late. It's it's not too late. When we read this passage, we absolutely should consider the warnings of Saul here. But more than that, we should should look to, to Jesus, this one who can take the broken pieces of the tragedy that I've made of my life and make them beautiful and make it a life that's worth remembering. A life that is centered on the glory of God, not on the center of Jordan and his glory. 1 Samuel 14, we come to the end of it and we're left looking for a true king. Thank God we found one in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and thank you um, that you've given it to us, that you've not left us wondering what it looks like to follow you. And so, God, in your mercy, we ask that you, through your Spirit, would help us to be a people who respond to the message of the gospel with with repentance, with with obedience, with faith, that we would live lives that are centered on, on your glory and not our own. Help us, God. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.